0: Welcome back to CSUS Politics! This is Hannah, Max, Ella, and Kai, here to recap this week's breaking news.
1: This past Tuesday, September 29, 2020, 28.82 million viewers tuned in to watch the first of three presidential debates. In such an unprecedented election year where campaigning is facing new constraints, candidates Joe Biden and Donald Trump had a platform to discuss their policies on the Supreme Court, climate change, healthcare, the economy, and more. However, as summed up by NBC commentator Lester Holt, the evening was determined to be a low point in political discourse. With many different polls being published that have very narrow margins of victory for both candidates, it is evident that there was no true winner of this debate. Arguably, the most critiqued moment came when moderator Chris Wallace asked Donald Trump to officially condemn white supremacy, who responded by telling the far right extremist group Proud Boys to stand down and stand by. Two days later, Donald Trump, in an interview with Fox News' Sean Hannity, did plainly condemn all white supremacists, but most of his critics say that it is too little, too late, citing other racially insensitive remarks made at the debate. Some of his loudest critics are those Trump harms through the intentional labeling of coronavirus as the Chinese virus. To talk more about Trump's recent aggressive foreign relations tactic is Hannah. International tensions
0: are on the rise, and that's manifested by the U.S. trade war with China. But now the newest battleground has opened and is focused on banning the tools of the next generation, WeChat and TikTok. Lawyers fighting to block the ban on WeChat believe that the targeting of Chinese apps also comes from anti-Chinese statements from Trump, like referring to COVID-19 as the China virus, the Wuhan virus, China flu, and Kung flu. Though a witty play on words, emphasizing foreign origins of a disease can lead to racism and xenophobia, and many believe that the ban is just a continuation of the president's racism. By prohibiting the use of WeChat but not other apps that aren't used primarily by Chinese people, the executive order singles out Chinese people and subjects them to disparate treatment on the basis of ethnicity and alienage. But even if users find alternatives, Trump's ban sets a dangerous precedent. Impinging on free speech and targeting people with connections to countries that just are not on good terms with the U.S.
2: President Trump has repeatedly challenged the ability to handle accuracy and voter fraud in an election heavily dependent on absentee voters. Though many of his claims have little credibility, could his general fear of miscounting have real validity? Recently... Almost 100,000 voters in New York received mislabeled and therefore defective absentee ballots, which raises lots of doubt about our ability to handle mass mail-in ballots due to the pandemic. The main error for mislabeled ballots comes through naming issues, which is exactly the source of inaccuracy in New York. A ballot which is signed by a different person than the name on the ballot will be labeled invalid, leading to many potential votes not being counted. Though the source of error came from a contracted printer company, rather than directly from a government agency in an election where a fraction of a percent within a state can make the difference, errors in collecting absentee ballots are not reassuring.
3: Breaking news on Thursday, October 1st revealed that Donald Trump and Melania Trump have both tested positive for COVID-19. At the time of recording on October 2nd, there are reports that Donald Trump has been showing symptoms of a fever, congestion, and cough. He has been transferred to Walter Reed Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. to get treated. Doctors have been giving an experimental antibody de- developed by Regeneron, which is said to lower the level of coronavirus in the body if caught early. Donald Trump is 74 years old and is obese, which sets him at a pre existing risk of coronavirus. In the aftermath of the announcement, polit- politicians say that Trump's diagnosis might convince some of his mass denying supporters to wear a mask and take the virus and others' safety seriously. Some people are up in arms about Trump receiving an experimental drug that is not accessible to the public, giving the notion that powerful people get special treatment when overcoming the virus. This has been disproven by experts who say this drug doesn't cure the virus and is labeled experimental for that reason. This story will keep developing over the weekend.
0: This week's top news has a range of stories, from the presidential debate, Chinese bans, voter fraud, to our president contracting COVID, but we weren't able to cover it all. However, there is an overarching theme concerning the tension around our election and the measures we take, such as investigating white supremacy, protecting Chinese American communities, ensuring a fair election, and monitoring our president's health to protect democracy and lasting peace for a nation ever since the ACA was passed, there has been almost constant discourse surrounding the constitutionality of the legislation. While some regard the ACA as ensuring all Americans right to healthcare, many others see it as limiting an American's right to choose. The First Amendment guarantees freedom of religion, which also relates to Congress not being able to decide or control any aspect of religion that might limit an American's right to practice. Many use the Ninth Amendment to argue that the existence of Obamacare is evidence of Congress's unconstitutional control over the healthcare system. For those who already have their own insurance, the ACA has still been an extra expense by increasing the income tax rate on Americans, making over $200,000 a year. The ACA's requirements expanded insurance coverage through individual mandates, which in turn raised overall health care costs.
1: The Supreme Court case California v. Texas challenges the ACA's individual mandate, which maintains that every citizen must maintain a minimum level of coverage with their health insurance. Any citizen who does not do so pays a mutual responsibility payment. The ACA upheld in the Supreme Court in 2012 as a constitutional use of Congress's taxation power. However, now that the payment has been reduced to zero in 2017's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act put into effect at the beginning of 2019. The case for whether just the individual mandate should be repealed or the entire ACA is being decided by the Supreme Court on November 10, 2020. With RBG's recent death and subsequent vacancy on the Supreme Court, the conversation around the ACA is far from over.
0: ACA has been seen as an initiator for affordable health care in America, with a movement advocating for universal healthcare. But if ACA is repealed, such plans and ambitions will be lost and pulled back, with more than 20 million Americans losing their healthcare coverage, and more than 135 million people will lose protection for the pre-existing conditions. Today, the healthcare system seems to be collapsing as government spending goes up and down while political leaders play power politics with healthcare. Healthcare costs for the average American family have reached unaffordable rates, causing the number of uninsured Americans to rise, mental health to decline, and medical staff shortages to increase. And the pandemic has thrown healthcare in the spotlight as a prominent issue that needs to be addressed. After all, Many face the uncertainty of contracting COVID without healthcare protection.
1: Obviously, back in the times of the American Revolution, there was no conception of modern medicine or health insurance. However, in the heart of our Bill of Rights lies the ever elusive Ninth Amendment. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In the modern day, why are rights that aren't even listed in the Constitution relevant? Some point to this amendment as the backbone of the Affordable Care Act. In 2020, the average American family pays $26,653 a year on health insurance while only earning $61,937. That is 43% of an average family's income, which is why 44 million Americans are uninsured. With the inaccessibility of healthcare on the rise, many have started to point to the Ninth Amendment by claiming healthcare as a right. This ideology has been prominent for more than a decade with former President Barack Obama declaring in 2008 that healthcare should be a right for every American. Proponents of the ACA, or Obamacare, say that this option ensures that every American has the right to affordable, equitable health insurance. The result since this measure was passed has been 20 million more Americans insured protection for the 135 million Americans with pre-existing conditions, equitable costs regardless of gender, and the expansion of Medicaid, to name some. To talk more about the pros and cons of the Affordable Care Act, we had the utmost privilege to talk with the former Special Assistant, the President of health, for Healthcare and Economic Policy on the National Economic Council, Bob Kosher.
4: Uh, my name is Bob Kosher. Uh, I wear a couple hats. Uh, today I'm a partner at a venture capital firm called BenRock, based in Palo Alto. I work on healthcare IT and services types of businesses. I teach at Stanford in the medical school and business school, occasionally see patients there. Uh, and prior to that, I worked in the Obama administration uh, on what's called the National Economic Council where I was in charge of healthcare and economic policy. Um, I got involved in government really through a desire to try to make healthcare better. I trained as a doctor and while being primarily a doctor, I was struck by how inefficient the system was, how hard it was to deliver exceptional care to patients, uh, and, and kind of two different things. One is how much we spend, and then um, how much seemed like it was wasted. Uh, and so that made me very curious about how you could change the way we organize healthcare to make it both better and cheaper. Uh, in the field of economics, I did a bunch of work, uh, on mapping out how you would change how we pay for healthcare and regulate healthcare to make it better and cheaper. Uh, and that caught the attention of policymakers. Uh, and I had the privilege of then being asked to join the Obama transition team in 2009 to think through how to plan through um, what the Obama administration does. And then during that, um, the opportunity to join the National Economic Council um, really it was, I think, because I. A person named Larry Summers who became one of uh, Obama's main economic advisors um, was familiar and liked the work that I had done um, that he asked me to join the economic team Uh, and so it was really through like writing papers that were read by people uh, and and hopefully you know contributing knowledge uh, that allowed me to have the opportunity to serve in government and uh, of course it was a dream come true to get government it's an amazing experience to even have a badge, that lets you walk through the gate into the White House. Uh, and then um, really interesting to see how policy gets made and sort of, you know, all the constraints that you have to work through.
2: Yeah, I'm sure we could speculate about the effects of decisions made in the Affordable Care Act. But one of the most interesting, unfortunate impracticalities was the mass consolidation of hospitals and an overall decrease in smaller independent practices. And as you said in the Wall Street Journal article you wrote about this, mass cons- consolidation really leads to a decrease in innovation, experimentation, and overall reform in the healthcare system. Um, and talks of universal healthcare um, have really increased in the past few years, notably under the Bernie Sanders campaign. And I'm wondering if you think that the socialization of healthcare will also bring this issue of consolidation and maybe what other major hurdles you think might be overlooked in the socialization of healthcare?
4: Sure. So I think all people in America should be, should have access to healthcare. And I, not just healthcare like when you need to go to a hospital, but if you have a disease, you should go get care for your disease and you should be able to afford it. Uh, you should be get the medicines that you need, And and if we do that, we'll avoid a bunch of complications and also help people live better lives and live lives where they can work, where they can do fun things, where they can have relationships. And so I think it's very important that all Americans be able to get the they need. And one of the biggest barriers to that is that healthcare costs a fortune. So for a family of four in America, uh, if they're buying commercial insurance, they're paying about $20,000 on average for for their insurance. And when they buy it, they're getting insurance that's not like free healthcare. No, they have four, five, $6,000 deductibles most of the time before the insurance really starts to pay. Uh, and so it's incredibly expensive. And, and if you're born with a genetic disease like diabetes, or you're unfortunate Crohn's disease, or interval bowel, or rheumatoid arthritis, any number of things, you have a disease that every year is going to require you to get healthcare. And you're going to have to spend six or seven hours a year just to take care of yourself to get the medications that you need. Um, that if somebody does who doesn't have that condition doesn't have to pay. And so I think a lot about how to make healthcare more affordable because twenty thousand dollars is a huge chunk of most families' incomes to be spending just to access healthcare, plus the six or seven thousand dollars you'll spend on a top of that if you actually are sick or have a chronic disease. And so I spend my life thinking about if I can make healthcare more affordable, I could. Provide a lot more of it to you, and I could probably lower the cost sharing. And one of the barriers to that is the fact that in America we let capitalism set the prices for things. And we talk a lot about drugs being super expensive, and drugs are super expensive. It's kind of astonishing that insulin, a molecule that's you know been discovered decades ago and should be generic, costs fifteen thousand dollars with insurance. Like that's that's crazy. Um, but what's even crazier is the fact that. Um, hospitals and health systems are, are actually able to set prices also uh, that are high. Um, and most of the spending in healthcare isn't on the drugs. That's about 15% of the cost. And so while the prices are high, the real money is spent on hospitals and doctor visits. That's where most of the money is spent. And most of that money goes to hospital systems. Uh, and in our area, that's places like Stanford or UCSF or Sutter or Alto Medical Foundation owned by Sutter. Uh, and. Healthcare is local, and so it's very easy to have a monopoly of healthcare. If you're living in the peninsula, if you get really sick, you probably end up going to Stanford, and so that, and you're not going to drive like across the bridge to Oakland, or probably drive up to the city. And so Stanford's effectively a total monopoly for high-end care. If you need special, multi-specialty care, a lot of people go to Palo Alto Medical Foundation, and so, and they do a perfectly good job from a quality perspective, but. This allows these places to have local monopolies and be able to charge whatever they want to charge. They're able to charge that because the way we regulate insurance in America is at the level of a county. And so, that if you're if you want to be Blue Shield of California and sell insurance in Santa Clara County or San Mateo County, you absolutely have to have Palo Alto Medical Foundation in San Mateo County and Stanford in Santa Clara County in the network to meet the network adequacy definitions. And so the hospitals know that, so they know when they're negotiating with insurance companies that they can say any price they want, and they have to say yes, because if they say no, you actually don't meet network adequacy. Moreover, they know if you work at Google or Facebook or pick your genetic, pick your employer, the, the employer is not gonna accept insurance that doesn't have Stanford in the network or Palo Alto Medical Foundation in the network, et cetera. And so that means that the, that you have monopolies being able to raise prices every year. And how do we know that they act like monopolies? Well, in the last recession, in the great recession, most businesses actually had to lower their prices because demand fell in the economy. We lost 10 million jobs uh, and consumer demand went down. Hospitals raised prices on average 9% a year in 2008, 9, and 10, uh, when no other business could do that, which meant that they could act like monopolies because they didn't have to lower price in response to economic conditions. And what we've seen over the last 20 years is hospital prices going up at, a, at between 5 and 10% every year in perpetuity. Uh, and the only thing that's had prices grow at the same speed as hospitals is universities. And so it it shows you that you don't really have like a lot of capitalistic forces going on in this market and notion that you're, it's unlikely you can tell somebody who needs a surgery that we need them to not go to the hospital in their town that they can drive somewhere else. Um, I think you have to have some mechanism um, to create competition or downward pricing power. And I think the best approach is actually to have the government put a cap on how much a hospital can charge when when it's a local monopoly um, so that they can't either raise prices every year or they can't be more than a certain percentage higher than what Medicare charges. Right now, the most expensive hospital in the country, actually, is John Muir Hospital across the bridge over in Oakland. Um, they charge something like 400% of Medicare of their average charge, uh, which is astonishing. That equates to about $7,000 a day if you're a patient in the hospital with commercial insurance. And you think about it, $7,000 a day is crazy. Like, Like, I will fly or drive to your house as a doctor. I'll sit there all day long. And I will personally give you medicines and then have a nurse sit next to me and give you medicines too um, for less than $7,000 a day. It's just astonishing like what these hospitals are costing. Uh, and that's because there's no downward price pressure. And so Bernie Sanders in his proposal, has said, we need to have the government set prices. And um, while he wasn't very specific about what the prices would be, uh, and I'm not very confident that there's exactly fair ways to do it. So I, I'm not sure if that's a good idea. I do agree that we have to do something to help mitigate the prices, because if healthcare were cheaper, it would be a lot easier to have everybody have it. Um, our healthcare system is so expensive that you end up with these high cost sharing, you have these narrow networks, you have confusing formularies, you know, like, like, all these things have been put in place to make it harder for you to spend money um, because it's so expensive. And so to me, the, the problem that I spent my life working on and I will keep working on is how to make it actually cheaper. Um, and then I think you can make it better. Like One way to make it cheaper is to not have complications. So there's ways you can align the incentives for better and cheaper, but um, American Huckers are so expensive because the prices are too high and prices are too high because we allow the market to sort of set them, but there's not really a market.
3: Got it. Um, yeah, that, that was a really good answer. Um, so I now I kind of wanted to move on to kind of the more legislative aspects uh, of the Affordable Care Act, especially with within like the Supreme Court right now, there's a lot of news about Donald Trump's new nominations to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, and what a Republican majority uh, Supreme Court can, ha- can have in store for the future of healthcare in America. So I was just wondering what kind of, what effect does a Republican majority Supreme Court have on the future of uh, health care in America? Yes.
4: So um, great question. So first, the Affordable Care Act could be called Mitt Romney Care. So when we went out to create President Obama's health care policy, we didn't start with the Affordable Care Act as the model. We, started, we looked at the Bernie Sanders type approach of Medicare for all. We looked at a public option. Um, and when we thought about what to do, it turned out that what was in a Massachusetts by Republican Governor Mitt Romney ended up being um, a quite sensible approach that actually worked well in Massachusetts and it's worked well for the last decade in America. Uh, and so first it's ironic that Republicans are attacking a Republican healthcare proposal. It wasn't actually the most progressive democratic one that we chose. We chose the most practical one to get implemented. Uh, and it's worked, worked remarkably well, given you know, four years of Republicans trying to undermine it under the Trump administration And then during the Obama administration, no ability um, on the part of Congress to allow us to make any modification or fixes to it. Um, The current Supreme Court case, well, and and what we've seen is a new strategy for undermining legislation, which has never been done before. We've never had another major legislative program in America ever um, so aggressively litigated by the other side. You know, this is a a new approach to how to, you know, overturn the will of American people. current Supreme Court case about the mandate no longer being a tax because there's no money collected could easily be fixed by Congress by passing a bill that says there's a $1 tax, like, or a one penny tax for that matter. Uh, and so it's a silly thing to even be arguing about it because in normal American history, Congress would actually fix this. Um, another one of the cases about, you know, whether or not the mandate's a tax or not could have been fixed by, by a drafting correction because it is meant to be a tax. <laughs> Where we could have actually made an edit to the document and then fixed it. Uh, and so um, this is the first piece of major legislation. Never had a technical corrections bill run through Congress to fix it. Normally, after you fight over a bill, then both sides sort of allow you to keep fixing it when there's mistakes and when there needs to be modifications. And so here we had to be, you know, who would have thought we had to be like, you know, like, like writing the Bible or something where you can't make any mistakes. And, and so a lot of the court argument is over things that actually we could have just normally fixed through technical corrections. Now to the case, the um, Supreme Court will hear arguments on Affordable Care Act um, November 10th, be an hour and a half argument, um, and this is a case brought by 34 Republican Attorney Generals, basically making the claim that because they got rid of the mandate penalty when Trump did the tax cuts, that the mandate is no longer a tax because no money is collected. Uh, and it went through the Fifth Circuit, which is a very conservative um, court. Uh, and a district judge said, yep, the law you know, is unconstitutional. We should throw the whole thing out. It got appealed to the um, Court of Appeals. And um, in a surprise, the Court of Appeals said, maybe you're right. Maybe we should throw the whole thing out. Um, 27 Rep- Democratic attorney generals then filed a petition to the Supreme Court saying that's ridiculous. Um, and the Supreme Court took up the case. And so that's what we're going to hear November 10th. Supreme Court will probably not make a decision until the third of June, which is the last date they can release a decision, because uh, this will be a controversial decision. Probably, uh, there's four, there's one, there's four different outcomes I think the court could could take. One is they could say, and this would be the easiest one for them, is that the Republican attorney generals do not have what's called standing to actually make a claim that they've been harmed, because this is a federal tax, not a state tax. States wouldn't wouldn't have gotten any money anyway if there was a mandate tax. And so they could just say, you actually don't have any, you've not been harmed, so you can't bring the case. And they could throw it out on the basis of standing. That would be one thing that could happen. The second thing that could happen is they could say, yes, you're right. The mandate no longer is constitutional. We can just take out the mandate and leave the other thousand pages of the law in place uh, and not change anything else. And that actually wouldn't necessarily change anything because the mandate was less important than we thought. It hadn't led to a whole lot of people buying because we haven't, like we haven't seen many people paying the mandate, the mandate company went down, nothing changed in coverage. And with COVID, nobody wants to not have insurance. And so getting rid of the mandate by itself, not the end of the world. The third outcome they could do is they could say, yeah, the mandate has to go and the other things kind of related to it. So in the Affordable Care Act, we have a requirement called guaranteed issue, which means anybody who has a disease still has to be able to be covered. We say, if you're up to age 26, you can stay in your parents' plan. We say, you can't charge old people more than three times more than young people to, to buy insurance, so we kind of compress the, the premium variation. Uh, we require um, preventive care to be given away for free as part of the benefits package. Um, all of those logically have some connection to the mandate, which is they work if everybody buys insurance because um, it's risk that it should be borne by the large population of people. So maybe Supreme Court will say that all of the coverage-related Provisions have to go away, but you leave in place the subsidies and all the other Medicare payment reforms. Uh, and they would tell states that they could have to fix it because states normally govern insurance. And so states could put back in place all of those things if, if they took it out of the federal law. Um, that would be challenging because not all states would do it. So we would see some states say, forget it. We're gonna not like, put pre-existing, pre-existing protections in for patients, but other, others, others might. California would probably put everything back. Um, and then the fourth outcome would be they could throw out the whole entire law and they say, Congress, back to you, make a new law. That would be terrible because as you could, if you recall, the Republicans tried to get rid of the whole Affordable Care Act. Uh, Trump tried to repeal it and they didn't actually, John McCain voted no while he was alive uh, and the Republicans did not, didn't succeed at taking out the Affordable Care Act. An important note is that they don't have any idea what they would do if they had to pass a new law and there's not currently consensus Um, among Democrats or Republicans about what you put in this place. Democrats would argue we should do a whole bunch of more progressive things, do the Bernie Sanders Medicare for all thing. Republicans would say let's do like vouchers that give you coupons to buy, you know, unregulated insurance. And I'm worried that there's not actually 51 or 60 votes, depending on how you're going to need to pass this bill, um, that would come together to understand what the and you'd have chaos. Supreme Court might say like the whole is unconstitutional, but not for two years, and so they might give them some time to figure it out. But I'm pretty worried that there's not consensus about what to do, uh, and that we would sort of really lose a lot of progress that we made as a country. Uh, now, I think the Supreme Court lives, you know, on planet Earth, and they're aware of like that we're in a pandemic, uh, and that it's unlikely that Congress could actually fix it. So I'd be surprised if they choose option four, even though you know ideologically they they may you know they may be pre you know predetermined to want to do something more you know radical. Um, I doubt that the Roberts court would actually do that. They've upheld the law twice. And while the you know while the court cut might different people on it, I'd be surprised if they sort of take option three. I think I think the easiest one is to say no standing or say the mandate narrowly doesn't doesn't remain constitutional.
2: Um that's fantastic. Thank you. You um essentially Answered our next question, which was um, we were wondering if there was um, a chance of a full repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act, but um, we, because there is like no substantive substantive plan as uh, as of now. Um, so
4: I mean, let, let me let me let me offer you a little more of that though. Um, the Republicans definitely, it, it, when the Affordable Care Act is in place, we we have learned that there's not. 51 Republican vote to repeal it, um, largely because they don't they don't have a better idea for what to do. If the Affordable Care Act were gone, remember the Affordable Care Act is covering 24 million people right now. So if you get 24 million more people uninsured, and remember, we also would be taking away things like um, money for outcomes research and money for the Medicare Innovation Center and all of Medicare's new payment bonds. I mean, there's a bunch of other things in this law. If they all went away, um, it would be so bad. That I think both sides would be would have to, would be pragmatic and say well we have to do something, and so well I don't think there's conviction for what you would do because they haven't it's probably because they get the conviction like, There's nothing like a crisis to make you make a plan, and you know take take pandemic for, you know the pandemic response like we used to have a plan. Uh, the Trump administration fired the people who were in charge of disaster at the White House and the pandemic team, uh, and we didn't have a plan. And then, lo and well, you have a pandemic. And now suddenly, like, we're, we're ever so slowly, but we're making plans. And, like, they passed trillions of dollars of stimulus money. If you asked Republicans, would you like to pass a $3 trillion stimulus bill for the U.S. economy and not pay for it, they would have been like, that is, we never do that. Well, they did it twice. And so, if we don't have the ACA, well, I don't think we know what the plan would be. I don't think you'd have Republicans be quite so confident that they could just ignore it. And I think Democrats, you know, also wouldn't be quite so determined to have it be only Medicare for all, because you're not going to lose 24 million people like with no health care. Um, and the pandemic, sadly, isn't going to end anytime soon. And so, you know, even after we get through this phase of the pandemic, COVID-19 is going to remain around, uh, we'll still have to, you know, give people vaccinations, we might need booster shots, this might be like the flu where the virus mutates, so every year you have to get a new shot. Um, like, we're not going to be like, oh, we can go back to sort of like languishing and letting people be uninsured. So um, I, I have hope and confidence that actually we'd come up with some sort of plan, but I'd be worried uh, that there'll be a bunch of people who are hurt in that process.
3: Okay, that was a that was fantastic. Um, now I kind of wanted to move on to kind of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and first of all, I just want to ask, like, what does the infection rate of COVID mean for the future of like pre- people people with pre-existing c- conditions and their coverage in the United States?
4: Well, what we're seeing from COVID-19 is that some people, it's a very strange virus. I've never seen a, a healthcare, uh, any any disease where about a third of people don't know they have it and 3% die. This is a very, very weird disease. Um, for, for people who don't die, um, some recover and appear to be completely normal. Um, at least they, have, they are thus far, but we've only known about COVID for 275 days. So, you know, we don't know. Um, but a bunch already have long-term complications. And so there's lots of cases of people who get um, what's called cardiomyopathy, where their heart no longer pumps very strong. Many people get lung damage, and then they aren't able to sort of run and you know exercise like they did before. Um, some people get have strokes and then have lasting damage from the blood clot that they got. And so there'll be a bunch of people sadly who have long-term permanent complications that don't get better from COVID-19 which will be pre-existing conditions. Uh, and it's, you know, health insurance companies didn't used to cover people who had pre-existing conditions because they said, well, that's going to be costly. I don't want to cover that. The ACA made that illegal. Um, if we were to lose those protections, it will be very expensive for people with COVID related complications to buy insurance. Some states prior to the ACA called, had what's called high risk pools. So if you went out and tried to buy insurance and they said, nope, we won't cover you, you, could, you were eligible to then buy into the high risk pool. But this was very, very expensive insurance because you're joining a pool of people who all cost a lot of money, which meant the premiums were super high. So very few people, very few people could afford to buy insurance when they're in a high risk pool. Uh, and so I'd be worried that there'll be a bunch of people in states that, you know, have lots of subsidies that make it prohibitively expensive to buy insurance if you had to go back to underwriting uh, because COVID-19 could be a pre-existing condition. We also have no idea what are the, you know, what happens, you know, in, in later years. You know, does COVID are, are there other complications that emerge late? We don't know.
3: Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It was great talking with you about like the present predicament on healthcare and what our healthcare system can become in the future. It was really just a pleasure having you on.
4: Thanks for having me on the pod. I hope it turns out well. And uh, uh, thanks for great questions. Kai and Max, nice to talk to you.